to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. The role of women in the Civil War is a standard sidebar topic for textbooks and other general histories. A few paragraphs on uh, some of the more well-known women and then back to the battlefield. Scholars today, however, are taking the subject more seriously. Another sidebar topic in Civil War scholarship is writing for young readers. Tonight, we'll combine the two with the book Courageous Women of the Civil War, Soldiers, Spies, Medics, and More, by M.R. Cordell, part of the Women of Action series. We'll find out how to write for young readers about this topic from the author on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America interactive radio player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. Powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. Coming to you, as usual, from the third floor of the Brewster Building on the campus of East Carolina University in Greenville, North Carolina, part of the UNC system, but not speaking for the UNC system or ECU or any other entity, just for myself. My guest will, of course, do likewise. It is the last Wednesday in November 2016 as we approach the end of the semester. Uh, It is also... learn from looking at the record on uh, uh, on Voice America, the 400 and something uh, episode of Civil War Talk Radio. We just passed the 400 mark uh, a show or two ago. So uh, thank you to everybody who's been listening through that. Thank you to new listeners who find out about the show and then uh, tell me they are binge listening to uh, one episode after another, learning about current work in the Civil War era. Uh, Now you've got 400 of those. I'm not sure I could stand 400 hours of my own voice, but that's why I try to let the guests do the talking. Uh, 
except, of course, in our introductory section, where we fill everybody in on the most important events uh, surrounding the Civil War talk radio world. For example, the big sports weekend that just passed. I know everybody, uh, I'm sure, has already seen the, the bitterly disputed play that decided the game this weekend, wrongly called by the official. The ball did not cross the line. Uh, had it gone otherwise, the result would have been different. But that's what happened, uh, as you know, on Sunday afternoon at the PGSA uh, Adult Soccer League tournament in the final game between my Greenville United team and the mm-hmm. Reavers, uh, who had beaten us during the regular season. No, it's not Reavers. It was uh, El Toro. It was a different team. Anyway, the ball, the, the winning goal, so-called, did not cross the line. I was on the post, guarding the rear post on a corner kick, and our keeper kept it on the line but not in. Oh, well, things happen. Bad calls are made. <laughs> Teams everywhere from uh, Greenville United to the University of Michigan get uh, uh Get, get uh, try not to use bad language uh, on the air, uh, uh, get punished by the officials, and that's what happens. Uh, more important, though, and you may have seen this on the ESPN Top 10, in the semifinal game, I actually scored a goal, uh, not a, a pretend goal like the one in the, the shorthanded game earlier this season, but an actual goal for my team. Uh, corner kick rebound hit the post, came out to me. I was two, two yards from the end line. Could hardly miss and didn't miss, amazingly. So uh, my season was made. I'm very happy and uh, ready to move on. This is our, I think, second show as part of the Civil War Talk Radio Network, uh, captained by SBB Radio 91.7 FM in Claxton, Tennessee, also serving East Oak Ridge, South Clinton, and North Powell. I like saying that. It makes me feel like Garrison Keillor uh, <laughs> and... and uh, 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 we, we welcome those uh, those stations to the air. Nice. In other news to, to go forward, um, Stephen Ambrose Historical Tours is preparing its season of Civil War tours. Please think about the uh, this hallowed ground tour for uh, May 20 to 28th uh, in 2017. I will be leading that tour. We'll be going, as we do each year, through uh, battlefields in Virginia, Maryland, uh, Pennsylvania, up to Gettysburg, back down to Virginia, following in more or less chronological order the Eastern Theater scenes. It is always uh, a really uh, fun week, uh, week and then some 10 days, a great way to experience these sites and to learn about them and uh, create some lasting relationships. Highly recommended. So if you're interested, uh, go to Stephen Ambrose tours.com that's the uh, website www.steven s-t-e-p-h-e-n ambrose tours all one word dot com and they will get you going I get paid whether you go or not this is not a paid commercial but I, I always like having more folks rather than fewer to talk to and share experiences and knowledge with so uh, if you're looking for something to do in May a uh, highly recommended way to spend the time if you're looking for something to do in the meantime, upcoming are shows on Civil War Talk Radio. Um, on December 7th, uh, that's next Wednesday, Ronald S. Coddington joins us to talk about the faces of the Civil War navies. This was the subject of an article on the cover story in Civil War Monitor recently, and his book, uh, An Album of Union and Confederate Sailors. On the 14th, Taya Miles uh, from University of Michigan 
has written Tales from the Haunted South, Dark Tourism, and Memories of Slavery from the Civil War Era. And then we'll take winter break, be gone for a few weeks, but come back in 2017 on uh, the 11th of January. Our topic will be The Last Road North, A Guide to the Gettysburg Campaign uh, by Dan Welch and Robert Orison. Uh, Mr. Welch will join us for that. On the 18th, the author of The Heroines of Mercy Street, Real Nurses of the Civil War, that's Pamela Toller, will be with us. That, of course, was made into a PBS series not long ago. And then uh, rounding out the month of January, Matt Hulbert uh, comes back to Civil War Talk Radio for a return visit and his new book, The Ghosts of Guerrilla Memory, How Civil War Bushwhackers Became Gunslingers in the American West. And you can find all these books, as always, when you go to www.impedimentsofwar.org. Learn about uh, what, who's coming up on the show, who's been on the show. You can click on the Amazon icons there and then get into the Amazon website, then buy your books. And that sends uh, some, some pass-through pennies to Impediments of War and helps support the, the website maintained by Mark Gaffney with uh, real... Uh, authentic 19th century fervor, keeping it up to date. You can also there donate to Civil War Talk Radio. I urge you each week to do that just because it seems like uh, why not Why not take advantage of that. But this week's something different. Uh, some longtime listeners recall in the past we offered as a premium for uh, donations to the show copies of books about the Civil War. Uh, books that I had written. Uh, I ran out of those copies some time ago, but we now have, for a short time, a set of books by David Long, the uh, late uh, professor of Civil War history here at East Carolina University. His classic book on the 1864 election, The Jewel of Liberty, Hmm. is... uh, I've obtained a set of paperback books from... uh, that David had given to a friend and uh, the friend was moving and wanted to know what to do with them. So what I'm proposing is if you donate uh, $25 to the show, I'll send you a copy of David Long's book and the funds you donate will be sequestered. And after we've gotten all those books out, take all those funds and I will donate them to the civil war trust uh, in David's name. So we'll recognize him with a, a nice gift for battlefield preservation. So if you've been thinking, yeah, I'd like to support Civil War Talk Radio, but Jerry doesn't actually need any money. He's doing fine. Uh, I, I feel I'm being taken advantage of, so I'm not going to donate. Now you can, and yet you feel you're taking advantage by getting all this for free. Now everything's solved. Send $25 mm-hmm. uh, to Civil War Talk Radio. Use the PayPal donation button. Make sure you include your address. I'll send you a copy of David's excellent book. And put those funds that you give aside, we'll put them all together and donate to Civil War Trust. Still not tax deductible. I have not set up a 501c3. No tax credit for doing this for you. Maybe I'll get one. But not for you. So don't uh, get in trouble with Uncle Sam by claiming that. So that's how that works. Hope to uh, see your donations coming in uh, and chance to read David Long's very good book on the 1864 election. Well, tonight we're talking about women in the Civil War. The title of the book, uh, Courageous Women of the Civil War, uh, limits that uh, group to the subset 
further, soldiers, spies, medics, and more. The author is M.R. Cordell, and she is kind enough to join us tonight. Uh, Melinda, are you there? Yes, sir. Happy to be here. Welcome to the show. Oh, thank you very much. I'm very, I'm, I'm pretty excited to be here. <laughs> well, well, it's a pleasure to have you. This uh, about half the people who appear on Civil War Talk Radio are professors or professional historians, and about half of them do something else, have a different day job. Uh, the Civil War is one of the few fields where you have so many people writing good books who are not necessarily full-time historians. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about your background and what you do when you're not writing this particular book? Well, actually, right now I'm a proofreader. I'm a proofreader, proofreading coordinator at the American Angus Association, where it's all black Angus all the time. And, yeah, <laughs> I do sell books, and those are the um, catalogs they do for sales. But in a previous life, or before I you know, totally messed up my back, I was a horticulturalist. And actually, I've got my um, degree is in horticulture. My first degree is in horticulture. And I've worked as a municipal horticulturalist. I've worked in greenhouses, you know, um, but also writing. Writing's my main thing. And I got a master's of fine arts for writing for children at Hamlin University. And it's a wonderful program, a wonderful faculty. And I just, I just love them to death. <laughs> I had a wonderful the, time there. The idea of writing for children as a separate field is is always interested me. We've had a few children's authors on Civil War Talk Radio in the past mm-hmm. uh, who've written for, for children of, of younger ages. Your book, Courageous Women of the Civil War, is, I guess, young adult is the correct term? Yes. Uh, young uh, adult, so what, like what the, age, yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, what age group are we aimed at here? Well, basically, it's, it's basically the main group is young adult, and with I can I think it could probably reach down into a little bit into the mid middle grade readers, with you know where you're to be um, junior high, maybe elementary. But I also had a sort of I was writing. Well, actually, all children's writers have to write with an eye toward the adult audience too, because we have gate. You know, when it comes to children's, you know, writing. You have to write for the gatekeepers as well, and so I've, you know, you have to write with an eye towards the librarians, teachers, um, and with me, personally, I also wanted to write with an eye towards a scholarly Civil War audience and try to at least bring more things to the table that you know haven't been brought there before. So well, that's my, that, my I, intent. Go ahead. I think that's one of the most interesting things about this book. I, I get the solicitations from publishers or authors regularly who. Mm-hmm. think they have a, an idea for Civil War talk radio, and it's, they're not always appropriate for the audience. And mm-hmm. typically children's books are not necessarily the first choice, but your book does clearly have uh, adult audiences in mind in the background. I, I guess as you point out, the book's not going to get into a children's library if an adult doesn't read it first and yes. authorize it. Exactly. So uh, what, what makes this book more suitable for uh an adult audience than, uh, uh, than otherwise might be the case? Well, the scholarship, I have been able, the, the neat thing is that I really, I just, I can't get over this, that I actually have found some new stories that I haven't seen anywhere else. And actually part of it was I wanted to, you know, you always have the books that sort of go over the same ground again and again. You know, you always have, you know, of course, I, I went ahead and included some of those folks, you know, Harriet Tubman, you know, though I, instead of trying to, you know, with her, I tried to just concentrate on one aspect, the Combahee River Raid, that you don't hear a lot about, and tried to get more into the, you know, dig into that a little bit. 
Um, of course, you always hear about Sarah Emma Edmonds, and you always hear about um, Loretta Velazquez. Um, but I also wanted to bring some other folks that you know the people don't get exposed to. Um, I'm on I'm on the Civil War Talk Forum online. Mm-hmm. Wonderful folks, you know. So that's another reason why I really, really wanted to do a good job on the scholarship because I was like, some of these guys are reading, and they're they're no slouches. <laughs> But the nice thing was, the, one of the guys, um, Patrick, um, is a uh, Missouri historian, and he pointed me to the story about uh, Carol, no, Mary Carol. Mm-hmm. She's down in Pilot Grove. I'm in Missouri, you know, and appropriately. And she's down in Pilot Grove, mi- near the middle of the state, b- near Boonville. You know, big, mm-hmm. you know, big epicenter of the Civil War in Missouri. Just nuts. And she, her brother was jailed. They were all com- Confederate sympathizers, and he was jailed as, you know, abetting a raid on a uh, uh, Union man who was shot in the back. And he and two other folks were taken to the Cooper County Jail and, you know, imprisoned. And they were, he and uh, his friend Patrick Mastin was to, were to be um, executed before a firing squad. Now, with the things in Missouri as they were at those times, the NEM death sentence had to be, you know, sent to President Lincoln and approved before, you know, they could be carried out. Um, but before they were to be executed, Mary, she was 17 at the time, she made a key, uh, an iron key, you know, went down to the old forge by the river and, you know, got the, you know, key piece of iron, cut it out with a cold chisel, you know, used cold chisel, you know, and filed it. She said her hands were all over blisters, but she, she got her brother out of jail. So, yeah, I was just like, I've never it, heard that story before. It is a great story, and there are many yes. other good stories in here. We're going to take a short break now. We're going to come okay. back and talk more with Melinda R. Cordell, author of mm-hmm. Courageous Women of the Civil War. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America interactive radio player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. Powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The latest business information is made simple with the Voice America Business Network. The professionals in the business world bring you live talk radio shows featuring an array of business topics, strategies for building wealth, sales and marketing, stock trading, investing, and business technology. Voice America business hosts are professionals in their fields and bring to the airwaves weekly business discussions that offer up-to-date information, advice, and education. The Voice America Business Network. The bottom line in business talk. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. 
If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with Melinda Cordell. Melinda, is it Cordell or Cordell? Am I saying <laughs> your name Cord- right? Yes, it is Cordell. Cordell. Though we've had we've had um, folks back in the family tree that spelled it Cordell, so it gets a little confusing sometimes. I understand. <laughs> I want to make sure I'm getting it right. Somebody once mispronounced my last name. I've never gotten over that. Really? I don't want it to happen again. So I say. <laughs> uh, in our first segment, we were talking about. Uh, how this book, which is aimed at young adult readers at, at high school and middle school uh, aimed readers, but is not a, but differs from many children's books that one might otherwise encounter in that it includes original scholarship. Uh, for example, the, the story you, you shared about Mary Carroll in our first segment, uh, you also referenced the, uh, Harriet Tubman and her participation in the, the, the great Combahee raid. One of my students wrote her term paper on that topic this oh. year, and I was very pleased uh, that, that she had dug out that particular topic as oh, that's opposed nice. to uh, others. Now, what I want to ask you about is is the the way you combine this. The book, for example, does not have uh, footnotes or, or reference mm-hmm. numbers in it. Uh, I wish it did. Uses, but but you use an invisible reference system where where the mm-hmm. the notes are there at the back of the book keyed to phrases on the page. Yes. Uh, David Herbert Donald, uh, who was my graduate advisor at Harvard University, and listeners, you'll be glad to know that's tonight's mention of Harvard University. I try to get that in every week. Uh, <laughs> my my advisor there, he used that in his biography of Lincoln, the the sort of invisible reference system. Mm-hmm. It, it, it it struck me as interesting. It, it's not widespread, but why why did you do it that way, and why not have numbers on every page? Well, you know, now that now that I think about it, um, when I think about, I, I was using it was the publisher's choice to do it that way, and I could sort of see why they did it. Mm-hmm. As far as you know, when you're reading like my one of my um, uh, models was Truman Truman by David McCulloch. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm a big Truman buff. Holy cow, holy cow, you know. And I actually got I have the audiobook, sixty four hours of unabridged mm. Truman. Oh man, it's awesome. I love it. And actually if I read a lot of audiobooks, then that's a nice thing. But the but you know, the way he sets it up is the same sort of thing. He has the phrase in the back and it's linked to and I think it's sort of it's sort of um allows you to read straight through. If you're mm-hmm. one of those readers that don't like to be interrupted and, you know, not thrown to the bottom of the page every time, I kind of wanted to have footnotes on one hand because, mm-hmm. you know, at least you can have the um, source right there in front of you and you can sort of catch it as you're going through. But I think, you know, it might, it might sort of help pull the readers through and um, make it more about the story for them. But if they wanted, but I tried to make the, you know, source notes as thorough as possible because I love, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of a source note geek, you know, and it's like, you know, what do they do? Where do they, where do they find this? Can I look this up? And I wanted to sort of allow the readers that experience if they wanted to go back to the source notes and look it up themselves. That's, I've got a lot of, um, most of my stuff's from online, you know, due to the um, uh, National Archives has all this stuff digitized. It's wonderful. N- mm-hmm. Newspapers online, um, old 
regimental histories, um, books, you name it, and you can find it. And so I wanted the kids, if they really wanted to, you know, dig into it, and I'm sure there's there's some of them out there that do, you know, they can just go on there and find it for themselves and read the actual source, you know, notes that I'm using or the sources that I was using for this book. I, I think that really is effective. I mean, you have the, the reference notes and you have the bibliography with the, the, the published sources, the, uh, the, the books, interviews, magazine, newspaper articles, and so on. Mm-hmm. And it really does give uh, the reader what we take for granted with scholarly work, the opportunity to find out where did the author get all this. Mm-hmm. But for, for not just for young readers, but even beginning uh, readers, people who are simply interested in the Civil War but maybe haven't read much nonfiction at first, what do those little numbers mean? There's <laughs> a mystery. Uh, how, are they, how does this work? And mm-hmm. I could see using this book if I were teaching uh, a, a middle school or advanced middle school or a high school history class as a way of introducing people to, uh, you know, short, well-told stories, but supported by primary source references. And because they're online, but keyed to places like National Archives, they can go and look at them up themselves and yes. and see where you got all this. Uh, I, I think it's a great tool. It is. And you know, that now that I think about it, a lot of, a lot of young adult historians do this. And we do have a, a you know, right now we're, we're still in the on the wave of a golden age of young adult literature right now. We've got, hmm. my goodness, we have a lot. Especially if you look at the um, if you look at the National Book Awards um, for young readers over the last well, however many years, ten years or twenty years, um, you among the among the winners usually we have a nonfiction winner, and hmm. we've got some really good scholarship. Um, M. T. Anderson is one of them. He um, does does a lot of fiction, but he also um, wrote a book about Shostakovich recently, you know, just very well done, and, you know, and he's got all the source, and who else, who else, Susan, oh, Dran, I can't remember her name, she, but, yeah, it's, we've got some really good historians, and I can't praise him enough, his, uh, it's, it, it's kind of illuminating if you pop over there and sort of see what, what what's going on over here, we've got amazing stuff going on right now. Now, you mentioned another thing that makes this book particularly useful, I think, is that it is not just the usual suspects when we, we uh, <laughs> yes. go to the women in the Civil War sidebar. As you say, Harriet Tubman uh, is always going to be mentioned. Uh, I noticed with pleasure that Rose O'Neill Greenhow is not among the people you write about. Oh, I didn't uh, like her. I did not like her. <laughs> <laughs> I, I started researching her because the story was interesting, but mm-hmm. then I started seeing how she talked to people. I was just like, oh, you're out. <laughs> well, uh, my reasoning was you can read about her everywhere. That too. Uh, <laughs> so you've got that. But for whatever reason, uh, it's not just the usual people. You already referenced one uh, name that we don't often see. Uh, mm-hmm. You you have as just mentioned really in an introduction, uh, Mary Louvest. Uh, the name yeah. is spelled different ways, but an African American who somehow was able mm-hmm. to leave Virginia and meet with Secretary of the Navy Wells and, and yeah. provide in, in key information on the, the, the remodeling of the, the Merrimack into the Virginia. Yes, the so, building of it. Yeah, or, yeah the refurbishing. Re- okay, go ahead. Mm-hmm. So, well, tell, where did you find that story? Um, that was one that I'd seen. Actually, um, oh, oh, I don't have that book over there right now. I was trying to look on my bookshelf for the... Um, uh, Mrs. Haley, um, Alex Haley's wife, wrote a book about Mary Levesta. And, okay. oh, 
I am just very mad. Oh, me Haley. M.Y. Haley is her first name. But she wrote a whole book about that. Um, I wanted to write more about her, but I wasn't able to find enough on her to, you know, fill up the 2,000 words I needed. But the story is, you know, when you think about it, you know, after, after this, you know, towards the beginning, before the Civil War began and after the Civil War, you know, it was a lot harder for slaves to escape and make their way across. But, you know, I think it was like 50-some miles she had of um, Virginia in the winter that she's walking across, you know, and some of the most desolate son-of-a-gun places that you'd, you know, want to be in. But, you know, she managed to do that. So I did, I did you know, and he had um, Secretary Wells or Neptune, had a lot of, you know, some good things to say about her. So, there's another yeah, woman. Okay, I'm sorry, go well, ahead. I'd say that, that's what makes that story, is that then you cite the letter that Wells wrote you know, to an yes. unnamed recipient. So, so we have mm-hmm. it in Wells' writing that this is, was his encounter with her. It's not just hearsay. Yeah. Um, and she was in the mm-hmm. census before the war, actually. But I wasn't able to find her after the war. Mm-hmm. I'm curious about sources uh, that you use in, in general uh, one of the things that I most found most useful was uh, going back to Harriet Tubman you make a, a point about the, the quote many listeners will have seen in one book or another mm-hmm. that uh, General uh, you know, Rufus Saxton claimed uh, Tubman was the only uh, woman to lead a, a force in combat during the Civil War mm-hmm. and you point out that's not what he said uh, can you talk about that? Yes. Um, the usually when I'm when I come across a quote, when I'm doing my, when I was doing my research, what I the first thing I do when I find a quote that seemed pertinent to my research was I, and, and you know you know how people would just like well just requote things over and over. So they have all these articles going back to you know who knows when saying the same thing over and over and over, and you know so basically what I always do is I take an actual quote. You know, if they have some quoted material, I'll take it out and put it in Google and, you know, do a search that way. And, you know, that way I can try to see if there are any original sources or secondary sources that might point me to the correct source of this. And actually, for a while, I was, walk, you know, going around in circles because, you know, so many people had quoted this, you know, you know, it's like you quote something once and it becomes this, you know, authority. And, you know, it's like, this is not how it works. So, I was running around, and there was a, finally, I found a source was um, in one of the newspaper articles in the Liberator that was written about the raid. Well, part of it was, and then the rest of it, I believe, yes, was from a book called Harriet Tubman, written by Earl Conrad in 1947, I believe. And, and he, and he, and so somehow the quotes had become sort of, welded together and attributed to um, General Saxton. Um, but, you know, when you come across stuff like this, you want to, you try to, you try to sort of get to the source of anything you can to be sure it's correct. And, you know, as a genealogist, as a, well, quasi-historian, you know, or doing my best anyway, you know, I just kind of want to be sure I get it right. And so, you know, when people say things over and over, yeah, you know, you're just like, well, let's let's check that. Let's check that just to be on the safe side, and sometimes it does help. Well, I, I think this this is a perfect example of that, uh, and, and it happens all the time in Civil War historiography. Mm-hmm. Something gets yes. 
uh, cited and then someone else quotes it and uh, it appears if it shows up in Ken Burns series then everybody has heard it and repeats it but Mm -hmm. where was the original and and often that's lost and here you've tracked it down to where uh, the 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 Commonwealth July 10 1863 Mm -hmm. uh, alleges that she she led the raid and then in a 1943 biography, that gets quoted, but it sounds that mm-hmm. people mistake that not from a secondary newspaper source, but from the actual general. But he yeah. never said it. The newspaper said it. Yeah. And yet, and now that's the word that's out there. So you've you've uh, debunked an important uh, <laughs> quote there, a very nice uh, piece of work to, to have. And, and that kind of respect for the sources is what, again, distinguishes this book from a lot of oh. uh, young adult writing. Uh, I'm, I'm not an expert in young adult writing. I should say that. <laughs> uh, I should say it, it's what elevates this book to make it interesting to people who are not necessarily young adults. You'd still get some some benefit from reading it. Wonderful, uh, thank you. One other source quote I want to ask about uh, is uh, Loretta Janetta uh, Velasquez. You you mentioned. <laughs> Uh, in a sidebar, uh, you know, real hero or hoax, and uh, as, as you may well be aware, William C. <laughs> Davis has just published a book. Um, yes. Uh, called "Inventing Loretta Velasquez: mm-hmm. Confederate Soldier, Impersonator, Media Celebrity, and Con Artist." Mm-hmm. And I'm looking at the the uh, release from Southern Illinois University Press. I don't have the book out yet uh, in front of me. Mm-hmm. But the, the clearly uh, what Jack Davis is going to argue is that uh, she's a fraud. You think? And, and you, think? you, you, <laughs> you, cite, you mentioned his name in your acknowledgments. Uh, uh, you, yes. You, did you have contact with him about this topic? I did. Actually, I did. I, but actually, I got the information I got from him was for um, um, Francis Clayton. But mm-hmm. yeah, you know, we don't see it eye to eye on things, mm-hmm. understandably. <laughs> if anyone's familiar with his position, it's basically, um, <laughs> I'll say this, but um, I'll say that he, he said that because of, just because a woman is um, captured after, during battle, mm-hmm. on the battlefield, wearing a uniform, that doesn't mean she was fighting. And so I'm going, so she's like, she like finds this uniform, this lice-ridden uniform, and puts it on because there's nothing else to wear, and she's making a shortcut across the battlefield to go to a shoe store or shoe sale. You know, if, why does the logic towards women not apply towards men? You know, if a man is captured on the battlefield and wearing a soldier's uniform, wouldn't you expect that he was fighting? So why is it, why is the woman just there for fun or something? I don't get that. But yeah. Um. <laughs> so, so, uh, well, uh, I've had uh, Jack Davis on the show before. It's yes, been have. some time. I may have to. Uh, uh, I'll certainly try to be getting hold of this book. Maybe we'll talk to him about it. But you, you, I was certainly curious. I looked at your references, yeah. and you go back to contemporary newspaper accounts uh, of of her that mm-hmm. suggest it's at least not a post-war fiction. There were people at the time talking about her. Yeah, I was trying to lean on those as much as possible, but gosh, gosh, it's it's. She is very confusing. She is a she is, she's, yeah, she is very puzzling, and I would like to know more about what she was doing. And I wish she'd come clean with us. And you know, 
but for reasons unknown, she would not. So, yeah, she is a little problematic. I was a little sad about that because, you know, she sounded, you know, the way she got out of that jail that one time, I'll tell you that, you know, she was jailed in New Orleans. Mm-hmm. And um, and they're like, well, this is the end of a illustrious career, you know, and mm-hmm. and six, you know, so she's supposed to be in jail for six months. A couple days later, she's out on the street. And the policeman, you know, recognizes her and comes up to her and says, well, what are you doing out? And, you know, she sort of, you know, didn't want to tell him. And then she's, you know, finally confessed that she'd been sick or sick and she'd been sent to the hospital. And while she was at the hospital, she managed to get a pass and got out of there. And I was going, dang, girl, you know, she, you know, she's clever. She's smart, you know, but. So yeah, she's she's a little bit more of a problematic person. I wish I'd wish to heaven I'd had more time to work on her because you know try to find out. And I was very sad that I got the wrong, I got the the where she died. I got that wrong because I was looking through Jack's book on Amazon as much as I could. I was like, mm-hmm. oh dang, she died on New York. Oh yeah, I kind of wanted to go back and fix it, but I can't. It's already published. So well, they, they say you never finish a book. You just finally end up sending it off to the publisher. You always find new stuff later. Yeah, the publisher but, has to rip it out of your hands and say, just give me the book. We need to go forward. And we need to exactly. go forward now and take another short break. Our guest tonight, Melinda Cordell, is the author of Courageous Women of the Civil War, Soldiers, Spies, Medics, and More. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. <laughs> Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between, discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu.edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. 
talking tonight with M.R. Cordell, author of Courageous Women of the Civil War, Soldiers, Spies, Medics, and More. Before I forget, I want to uh, thank our uh, assistant engineer tonight, uh, Sophie, daughter of our guest who got her <laughs> Skype connection squared away before we started. So oh uh, you wouldn't, wouldn't be here without that. So thank you. Uh, the question I wanted to ask as I was reading this, thinking about the the way Civil War stories are told, uh, uh, Thomas Lowry wrote a book on sex in the Civil War called Stories the Soldiers Wouldn't Tell, <laughs> and the, the writing about such issues becomes difficult because the soldiers don't talk about them. Uh, the question of women in disguise is hard to write about because there aren't many sources. And then uh, a triple whammy is that you have that you're writing for a younger audience, where you know adult themes have to be handled differently. Mm-hmm. But you mentioned uh, pretty much up front near the beginning of the book that prostitution is a, a serious issue in mm-hmm. antebellum America and, and certainly during the Civil War as well. Uh, that's not a category of courageous women that you, you discuss separately in the book, but I'm just curious about your thought on, on how you decided to handle that. Well, uh, in the Civil War, you know, we didn't have a safety net for Ameri- many Americans. Well, many, many Americans. And you know, and people don't really realize that, you know, the burden that is laid on the women, you know, when the men go away to battle or, you know, the husband, the father, and there's, it's like, what is your source of income? You know, if you're, if your husband's in on the battlefield or if the checks or if the quartermaster is not paying for whatever reason, because I think that was, that was an issue in some, excuse me, regiments, especially down South, but even in, yeah, but actually, you know, there are two women that I know of that were prostitutes. You know, um, Frances Quinn and um, Loretta Velazquez. How, how, do you, how do you say her name, by the way? I, I have no idea. Uh, okay. your, your guess is as good as mine. Okay, cool. <laughs> but, but the, you know, I, I knew that the subject would come up, you know, certainly with Elizabeth, you know, since she was, you know, there to, after she was a prisoner of war, she was pretty much on her own. And... By all indications, her family had disowned her and had cut her off, apparently. So, you know, but I wanted them to understand that, or at least have an inkling that, you know, people don't prostitute, women don't prostitute themselves, you know, generally because it's fun or anything like that. You know, even that the battle, oh dear, what was that guy's name? Kill, who's that? Kill Calvary guy, Kilpatrick. Right. Yeah, mm-hmm. the Battle of Kilpatrick's Pants. You know, yes. and he was, you know, with a woman, you know, who who had no other way to pay home, her way home other than being his ugh, consort, you know. So so I mentioned that I wanted to mention that. And I saw that when I ran across that article, I, I was like, you know, I, that, there's a little article in the New York, New York Times. I should probably tell the tell the readers what the heck it's about so they know what the heck I am talking about. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> The article said, this is in 1861, a New York paper says the saddest sight is revealed by a walk at night through the upper wards of the city. Troops of young girls are there to be seen, walking the streets for bread. They weren't cunning, they weren't brazen, but they were shy, frightened seamstresses, shop girls, and but recently respectable domestics with no home, employment, or friends. And all they had was one desperate step between where they stand and starvation. I quoted that pretty heavily. 
Well, but, that, that, that reflects on when you talk about the women who disguise themselves as soldiers. Mm-hmm. When they're caught, uh, sometimes the officers who catch them are angry, uh, they're thrown out of the camps. Mm-hmm. It's not, the, the reaction you, you might imagine would be uh, to say, oh, how brave of you to take this risk. But instead, mm-hmm. the reaction is almost always negative, and yes. sort of the un- underlying suspicion is that they're there as prostitutes. Exactly, uh, and that's a charge that's often leveled against them even today by people who should probably, probably should know better, but maybe, I don't know. <laughs> Well, it, it 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 adds depth to the the treatment of them here. I wanted to ask about another. Um, uh, you, you you write about subcategories about soldiers, uh, spies, nurses, and then uh, vivandiers, which yeah. is the one that doesn't show up in most sidebars about the Civil War. Uh, what is a vivandier, and, and and what do you know about them? Well, vivandiers were. I'm sort of going with the French pronunciation i don't know sure. you know what i don't know if i'm do- doing french right at all <laughs> french <laughs> the french language is an evil evil thing but sounds pretty though but vivandiers are it's from the french word for food vivand and you know back during the crimean war uh the the armies of the civil war were partly um founded or drew inspiration uh, or you know what i mean from the Model armies of the, thank you from the um, armies of the crimean war and among the armies were vivandiers, which were sutlers. They sold um, goods to the men. They were also were laundresses and you know cooks. And so some of the some of the regiments picked up on this, and they seem to be more than what has been written about. And I'm thinking, I think that'd be a, that'd be a really fertile field to you know go and you know reap, go forth and reap from, I guess. But so basically, like the three Vivandiers I wrote about, um, Annie, Marie Tepp, Annie Etheridge, and Katie Brownell, were all, all three of them actually followed their husbands into battle, though Annie's died or divorced. We're, nobody's really sure. I haven't been, nobody seems to have found any record of James after you know, he started. But these women stayed on, or at least Katie, Katie left when her husband was wounded at the Battle of New Bern. But the other two women stayed on pretty much through the whole course of the war, Annie for certain. And basically, I, when people say, what the heck is a vivandier? You know, I call it a, a field medic in a dress. And a lot of the times, you know, most of them stayed behind the lines and, you know, just worked around camp and stuff. But some of them actually came out into battle and, you know, they're, they were um, encouraged to stay towards the back. But they'd bring water to the men. They'd sometimes bring whiskey, you know. Or just as as a stimulant, of course. The back in the day, the alcohol was used as a stimulant, not for you know fun on the battlefield. Good heavens, you want to be able to aim your gun. But you know, Annie and Marie were actually taking care of the wounded. Annie was directing the removal of the wounded from the field at Gettysburg. Um, General Muholland saw her on her horse, you know, coming out, and shells were bursting around her. She stayed cool you know she's like okay we've got to get these guys and you know she was yeah that's what her job was and she was very cool under fire there was a fellow there was a fellow who saw her at the battle of jerusalem plank jerusalem plank road and you know he was they were running the rebels caught them by surprise and the union forces were running back to the breastworks so they turn around and you know fight and when he jumps over the breastwork he lands next to a woman he's like what is this woman doing here and 
you know, she's out, she's staring out there, she's looking out in the field, and she sees a wounded person, she sort of beckons him over, you know, he comes back, and she binds up the wounds, you know, sends him on to the back, and looks out there again, and, you know, under heavy fire, and, you know, she's just cool as can be, it's amazing. It is remarkable what these these women do. Uh, mm-hmm. Katie Brownell, you mentioned, who served at the First Rhode Island Regiment, was uh, you, you describe her bearing the regiment's colors at the First Battle of Bull Run. Yeah, there's a, some question about that, but she was she apparently was on the battlefield at the time, according to several um, different sources. Though they, they that needs to be looked into more um, carefully. That does it's, seem a bit extreme uh, in terms yeah. of putting someone at risk. But I was just at New Bern with uh, a class uh, for a field trip this past semester, and the New Bern Historical Society has done an outstanding job in, uh, in the descendants of the 26th North Carolina Regiment. have done an outstanding job in what they've done with that battlefield. And there's now a, a one of the interpretive plaques there talks about her. Wonderful. Uh, which was mm-hmm. my introduction there. I, I hadn't known about that story before seeing mm-hmm. that. So uh, interesting to see it appear here again. Then you also talk about nurses, which is something that you know the young adult reader would immediately think women in battle, those would be nurses. Mm-hmm. But our listeners mostly know that uh, women were not commonly nurses before the Civil War. No, yeah. And yeah, here so- again, you, you, you mm-hmm. don't tell the, the Dorothy Dix Clara Barton story that everybody no. has heard. Uh, tell, tell us about the people you found interesting. Well, I found, um, I did like um, Georgiana Woolsey. Mm-hmm. She was, you know, she actually, she and her sisters wrote, um, had a collection of letters published, you know, later on in life. They would have had more letters, but the letter, the place where they stored the letters burned down, the warehouse burned down, and so they lost a lot of letters. But she was well-educated. She was a New York native, um, New York City, and, you know, went to the ballet and was educated in Europe, spoke several languages, but she just wanted to be a nurse. And, you know, she spoke about the um, the approbation, approbation, I believe that's the word. Uh, the um, surgeons did not want these women working with them. And she said that, you know said that the women really had a hard time trying to get, you know, do the things that they wanted to do, which is, i.e., help the men as a nurse, you know, just, you know, terrible treatment from the surgeons. And, well, you know, actually, if you've read anything about the women doctors who are trying to get a medical degree, you know, they, you know, the treatment there is just mind-boggling. But, you know, they, she said they stayed, and she said that, you know, a lot of it was just, they just want to do this work and be allowed to do this work. And, you know, they just put up with it and just kept going forward with their, you know, with their work. And so they encounter all kinds of obstacles. You also talk about Harriet Jacobs. Many people are, are familiar with her oh, yes. account mm-hmm. uh, uh, as, as a young girl uh, you know, being hidden within the South from a rapacious master. So she, she eventually, though, in, in during the war, you talk about her uh, engaged in, in fighting for contraband care in Alexandria, Virginia. Mm-hmm. And the enemy is not so much the rebels as it seems to be the Reverend oh. Albert Gladwin. Oh, my uh, gosh. That man. <laughs> tell us a bit about that encounter. Mm-hmm. Well, he, he was the superintendent of the contrabands. And... 
Methodist, was he Methodist? I can't remember. Oh, let's, let's not put any stain on the Methodists. They're good people. But, yeah, church man. But, yes, he was just, it seemed like everything that needed to be done, he was against. And he was always just doing these petty things, like trying to, you know, they all lived in this boarding house. And actually, the that's the picture of the, I have the picture included in the book with all the women in front of it. And kept trying to, you know, throw them out or take over their rooms or, and he just, oh, and uh, Juliet Wilbur was a, Julia Wilbur was a um, Quaker woman who was, you know, there working with Harriet in Alexandria. And she said, if the devil doesn't catch Mr. Goodwin, I don't, there's no use in having any devil. (laughs) (laughs) That that is is a great line. It is. I was like, I need to use that somewhere else. I will. But just, yeah, it's amazing. So he he obstructed all the attempts to care for the the contraband, the former slaves. Uh, Julia Mm -hmm. Wilbur's diary is interesting. We just have a couple minutes left. Uh, But you you reference uh, her diary when she's in in Richmond just at the end of the war, Mm -hmm. uh, encountering a a Union soldier, um, Mm -hmm. uh, Maria Lewis, who is not only disguised as a man, but is also a, a black woman disguised as a white person yes uh that must have been some trick it was yeah i guess you know you know the, and you know that you know due to the great instance of rape you know towards um you know black women by their white slave owners you know it was pretty much common and there are many white people who passed for white who were slaves because they the slave owners you know they, they always went by that one drop of black blood you know it's just mm-hmm. crazy but yes so she apparently had enough you know she passed for white you know and was able but the fellow she was the fellow that she was with was um julia wilbur's brother and he was with the eighth New York. So I'm thinking that he probably, and actually the whole regiment, the 8th New York, was from Rochester, New York, and there's a lot of um, abolitionist work going on up there. So mm-hmm. I think there's enough people in the officers' corps where you know that kept her safe and protected, including Julia Wilbur's brother. And I'm thinking probably that's how um, Maria was able to find Julia after the war and say, "I need a place to go, and you know, I'm I'm understand you can help me." So and so and so she was saved. Well, there are many other good stories in this book, and listeners uh, to get it. It's and or especially if you know listeners, a young person who might be interested in learning about the Civil War and wants a uh, young adult book that doesn't talk down to them and includes primary <laughs> source references and uh, will get them started in the kind of lifetime of Civil War scholarship that we have all uh, committed. Uh, endless hours mm. to uh, oh my. <laughs> here on the show and elsewhere. This would be a book to start with, uh, so you may want to consider that. And uh, Melinda, thank you so much for being on the show tonight. Well, thank you very much for having me on here, Jerry. I really appreciate it. I had a, I had a pretty good time. <laughs> uh, and uh, as did I, as did our listeners. And listeners, thank you as always for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week. Mm